0: well this morning are you doing well yeah. okay well if you have your bible please open it to genesis chapter three Well, thank you lyle <laughs> thank you Lyle. you're now my new number one <laughs> the world as it exists today is not how it was created to be we know that the Lord God created the world good without brokenness, without issues, without problems. The institution of marriage was part of his creative good works. And when you look at marriage through the lens of creation, we see that marriage is covenant. And we've talked about that. But we can't stop there because every marriage in the world is not what marriage was created to be. Your marriage is not. My marriage is not. So we must see marriage through yet another lens and that is the lens of the fall. You have to look at it through the lens of the fall as well. When you look at marriage through the lens of the fall, then you see that marriage is hard and even sometimes broken. When you see marriage through the lens of the fall, then you see that marriage is hard and even sometimes broken please realize that the attack on the institution of marriage is not something new under the sun. It just didn't start with same-sex marriage. It started in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3. A.W. Pink says, the third chapter of Genesis is one of the most important in all the word of God. He says it is the seed plot of the Bible. The seed plot of the Bible. And I'll add to that, it's the seed plot of the history of humanity. of man's relationship with God, with each other, and even marriage. So if you have your Bible, open it to Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid in the presence of the lord god among the trees of the garden this is god's word let us pray father as we come to your truth lord i pray as i pray every week that your spirit will move that he will speak to my own heart and he will speak to the heart of every person that's here you know the things that we're dealing with you know the weeks that we've had. You know the weeks we're getting ready to go into. And so, Lord, we need a word from you. We need your word to, to, to speak truth into our life, into the situations that we're dealing with, into the hardships of our life. We need to be reminded that, Lord, you're on our side. And so, Father, God, send your Holy Spirit this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I do need to make one change on the bulletin. The title of the sermon is not "The Separation of All Separations," but it's "Cheating Spouses." Is the name of that? Is the, the the title of the sermon? So, cheating spouses. I just want to let you know that. Um, in Genesis 1 and 2, we saw that everything and everyone that the Lord God created was good. Everything was right. Everything was in its proper order, particularly man's relationship with God. You see, Adam and Eve, they were not just in covenant relationship with each other. They were also in covenant relationship with the Lord God. You can't overlook that. And at this point in Genesis 1 and 2, that relationship was right. That relationship was good. The creation mandate that he gave them in Genesis 1:28 was to be lived out under him and with him. With him in a relationship and under him in terms of leadership. Authority, provision, standards, and care. You see, their, their relationship with God was primary. It was the most important of all relationships. Which meant, if that relationship changed, if their standing with God changed, that would impact everything else in their life. You can't miss that. If that relationship changed, if their standing with him changed, They will impact everything in their life, including their marriage. And it's this relationship that's going to come on their attack in Genesis 3. That relationship, that standing. It all started with a seemingly innocent, non-threatening conversation on the surface. But beneath the surface, this encounter was actually a temptation to cheat. A temptation to be cheating spouses. Moses began this chapter by introducing to us a new character with a certain quality. The text says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So first we see that the serpent was made by the Lord God. If it was made by the Lord God, then the serpent was what? Good. It's part of his good creation. Second, the serpent was given a quality. A certain gift by the Lord God. You see, he didn't become more crafty. He was created more crafty than the other beasts of the field. Hope you see that. And that was good. The Hebrew term for crafty can also mean clever, cunning, subtle, sharp-witted, perceptive. And this quality of the serpent is going to be, is emphasized here because its quality is going to color the whole chapter. For the serpent came under the control of the enemy. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us how or when that happened, but it's clear that the enemy was at work. Calvin says, Satan perverted to his own deceitful purposes the gift which was divinely imparted to the serpent. Satan perverted to his own deceitfulness the purpose which was, I'm sorry, Satan perverted his own deceitful purposes the gift which was divinely imparted to the serpent. So then, if we understand that Satan is controlling the serpent, then it's right to assume that he's going to try to undo what God had created. Mm -hmm. He was going to tempt Adam and Eve to cheat on the Lord God, to commit adultery on their creator, and forever change their relationship with him, with each other, and even with creation. And so, like a smooth, clever, non-threatening operator, he steps up to Eve and say, hey girl, let me holler at you for a minute. Hey girl, let me holler at you for a minute. Did God actually say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that? He was focusing on the negative with the intent to cast a seed of doubt in Eve about God's goodness about God's provision, about God's trustworthiness, about God's authority. This is a subtle question, but it was actually a temptation. Eve responded to the serpent by saying, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what God told Adam? Word from word, is that what he told Adam in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? The Lord told Adam, you are free to eat from every tree in the garden, but a tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. You see, Eve didn't mention free and every in her response to the enemy. God's command to them was well, was in the context of liberty, not bondage. They had freedom in the garden, but they just had one limit. One limit. Nor was she specific to the serpent about which tree they couldn't eat from. How many trees was in the middle of the garden? Are you sure? Are you sure? Genesis 2, 8 and 9 says, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God sprang up every tree that is pleasant to the eye and good for food. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Both trees were in the garden. Two trees in the garden, one for life and one for death. Which would they choose? Life and death was presented before them. Which would they Choose. They were free to eat from the tree of life, (laughs) but forbidden to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eve said they couldn't eat it or touch it. At least they die. At least it's like the possibility they could die. But God said you will surely die if you eat of it. Not maybe, not might, not a possibility, but without a doubt, Without exception, you would die if you eat of this tree. Calvin says, the woman's response showed that she was beginning to waver. And the enemy saw it. Because he counterattacked her with a blatant denial of God's command. He says in verse 4 and 5, you would not surely die. For God, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God says... In the day to you eat of it, you will surely die, but the serpent says you will not surely die. Do you see what he's doing? What he told them was no lie. You don't realize verse 5 is not a lie. God did know if they ate of the fruit, their eyes would be open. God also knew when they ate of the fruit, there were no good and evil. God knew those things. So the enemy, he affirmed one truth and denied another. The enemy has a way with words, craftiness, used in it deceitfully. He used some of the same language that God used in order to make it seem like God was holding out on Adam and Eve. Not just holding out on them, but lying to them. What was at stake here was whether Adam and Eve would obey and stay faithful to God. Would they trust him and not eat of that tree? Would they continue to see that all the Lord God had done for them was for their good? Even the command not to eat of the forbidden fruit was for their own good. But the enemy wanted them to see that God's command for them was bad. It was not fair. He wanted them to question God's authority over their lives. He wanted them to think that God was holding them back. From their happiness, from their full potential, because he had his divine foot on their neck. So the enemy presented what was forbidden in a positive way. If you do eat this fruit, your eyes will be open. And hey, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. Is that a good thing? You see, Adam and Eve were already in the image of God, <laughs> they were the crowned. Of God's creation. They were. And so, what was being promised to them here was, was them gaining something that was only belonged to God, something that God didn't want them to have. And He had good reasons for that. He knew if they disobeyed Him, it would destroy their relationship with Him. He knew the negative impact this knowledge would have on them because they were not going to just have knowledge of good and evil, they were going to have it by experience, people. They were going to know it by experience. They were going to experience evil, not just here, but in their life. They would gain this knowledge at a great cost. They were going to lose much to gain it. And again, the issue was whether or not they will remain faithful, spouses to God, or will they commit adultery and become cheating spouses? There's a reason all of us here are not floating around. There's a reason that you can sit in your chair, and it's called the law of gravity. Gravity is the force that bends things in its direction. If earth had no gravity, then all of us would just float away. God created Adam and Eve to be under his divine gravity. All their direction in life was to come from and through him. They were under his divine gravity through covenant relationship in which they had freedom with limits. They were given good provisions. They were given good care. They were given good limits. And they had good authority. And in Genesis 1 and 2, they found joy in being under that gravity. It was good. But in Genesis 3, it is presented as something bad. And they began to question it. It wasn't just Eve. Adam was right there with her the whole time. So he's in it with her. And so it's like like the lyrics of of a song from John Mayer that says, gravity was working against them. Gravity wanted to hold them down. That's how they saw it now. God's gravity was working against them now. It wanted to keep them down. And so the enemy said, break free from it. Be your own God. Take control of your own life. Eat that fruit. This was not about a tree, people. This was about a peaceful, trusting relationship on the verge of being broken. Man getting ready to fall out of good standing with his creator. And they did. And they did. They committed adultery. They ate of the fruit. Verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. In Genesis 2, 9, Moses says, Out of the ground the Lord calls every tree that is pleasing to the eye and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of evil as well. This mean, meant that the tree of knowledge of good and evil was pleasant to look at. It was good for food even. And so when you read the first half of Genesis 3 verse 6, you know, by her saying that the tree was good and it was delightful, I don't think that's the issue. Because God, it was God's creation. There's nothing wrong with admiring God's creation. But what gets her in trouble is when she said it was to be desired to make one wise. Because there you have is covetedness the first sense of idolatry when she was going to take part of God's creation and use it for something that was never meant to be used for she was under false assumption that she was going to eat this forbidden fruit it was going to make her wise and the Hebrew term that's been translated to be wise also means to lust after and also means to covet that's what she was doing that's what she was doing the tree was not bad, but her, her idolatry and disobedience was bad. It was her, her desire. And so, as we know, our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, ate of the forbidden fruit. And there was consequences. Consequences. First, they, they opened, their eyes were open. And, and what did they sow? They sowed their own nakedness. So the serpent's first promise was, was fulfilled. The eyes were open. But they did not get this secret knowledge that he thought they, they, thought they were going to get. The first thing they saw was their own nakedness. Their own shame. Their own guilt. One commentator says, Our first parents lost the blessed blindness. The ignorance of innocence which knows nothing of nakedness. In Genesis two twenty-five, the couple were naked and experienced no shame because they were covered by the innocence that God gave them. But their sin, their disobedience changed all that. The innocence is gone. And another commentator says, their spiritual death is revealed by the alienation from one another, symbolized by the sowing fig leaves together for barriers. And the separation from God is symbolized by hiding among the trees. You see what has happened? They have fallen from grace. In the Dark Knight film, Harvey Dent is portrayed as the opposite of Batman. Harvey is Gotham's white knight. He is the crown of a good hero who wears no mask. In the last fight scene between the Joker and Batman. Uh, the Joker tell Batman, you didn't think I would risk losing the battle, battle for Gotham's soul in the fist fight with you. He says, no. You need an ace in the hole. Mine's Harvey. I took Gotham's white knight and brought him down to our level. It wasn't hard. You see, madness, as you know, is like gravity. All it takes is a little push. That's what the enemy did. Gave him a little push a little push, a little push toward the fall. He took the crown of God's creation who was created in God's image and tempted him to fall into sin and he fell. He fell. Remember the quote at the beginning of the service. It says, it's very easy to plant a bomb in a peaceful, trusting place. That is what cheating spouses do and then detonated it. Our first parents planted a bomb in their relationship with God, their relationship with each other, and their relationship with creation, and even in their own selves, and in their rebellion, they detonated it. Boom. Everything blew up. And the collateral damage is what we feel in our lives, in our marriages. We feel it. The reason marriage is hard, because our first parents sinned against God. And brought the world into a state of sin, misery, and brokenness. That sinful rebellion separated them from God. And their fall from grace has fallen on us all. All of us. The world has a new normal. And that normal is sinful and broken. Everything now has issues. You as an individual now has issues. You have sin in your heart. And in your life. And it's your sin. That makes you a cheating spouse. But now hold up pastor. You're going too far. I've been a faithful spouse. So what do so you mean I'm a cheating spouse? Remember what happened after Adam and Eve. Eyes were open. They saw their own nakedness. Their shame and their guilt. They saw their own need. They saw they had a need. Now. Did Adam go help Eve with her need? Did Eve go help Adam with, with his need? Did they go to each other and say, you know, we messed up. We need to point ourselves back to the Lord. God, no, that first instinct was to take care of self. I got to get my need met. So Adam goes and so his own fig leaves for his covering. Eve goes and make her own fig leaves for her covering. Self-centeredness is what is in the marriage now. And in self-centeredness, each spouse got to get their needs met first. And it's this self-centeredness that alienated them from one another. The other man or the other woman in your marriage would be your own self-centeredness that comes from your own sinful heart. The other man and the other woman in your marriage would be your own self-centeredness that comes from your sinful heart. Your self-centeredness is the fig leaf that alienates you from your spouse because it's all about you. Self-centeredness is the reason why spouses do commit adultery. Because you hear it all the time, well, he or she, they wouldn't meet my needs. So I had to find someone who would. Self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is the reason why spouses will abuse each other emotionally and even sometimes physically because one spouse is all about them. They want all the control and all the power. Self centeredness. It's the reason why some spouses don't take personal responsibility. It's the reason why you you, you put other people and things before your spouse. Marriage is still good, but it's also hard and seriously broken because of our own sin and our own self centeredness. And all the things I said about marriage's covenant is now hard. Self-sentence is going to make it hard for you to be the best companion for each other because you're always going to be tempted to get your needs met first. Your self-sentence is going to be hard for you to be a covenant spouse, keeping those covenant vows because you're always going to want to get your needs met first. It's going to be hard because of self-sentence to function as one flesh because you always want to get your needs met first. It's your natural instinct now. Me. You meet my needs first, then I meet yours. Self-centeredness is going to make it hard now to affirm and to accept your role as a helper and head of house because you're going to either abuse that role or abandon that role because self-centeredness is in your marriage. Every day as a spouse, you're faced with living selflessly with your spouse or selfishly with your spouse. That's what we're faced with. Either I'm going to die to myself or my spouse, or I'm going to make it all about me. That's what we face with every day. Tim Keller says, "Self-centeredness is a havoc-wrecking problem in marriages. It is the ever-present, present enemy of every marriage. It is the cancer at the center of a marriage. When it begins, it has to be dealt with. Self-centeredness." It's a havoc-wrecking problem in many marriages. It is the ever-present enemy of every marriage. It is the cancer in the center of a marriage. When it begins, it has to be dealt with. The day they fail was the day self sentness was game on in your marriage. Or when you get married, it will be game on in your marriage. And how can and you, will you deal with it? We're going to get into more details about what that means. But how do you deal with it? Like you deal with every other sin. You take it through the throne of grace. That's how you deal with it. See it. When your spouse calls you out on it, don't get defensive. Just Say, you got me. Take it to the throne of grace. Take it there. A friend of mine, when I was in seminary, he told me, He said, when he got married, God showed him basically how self-centered he was. I'm telling you, when you get married, you're going to see it. It's going to show you just how self-centered you are. And the question is, how are you going to deal with it? As a follower of Christ, you take your sin to him and ask him to heal you of it. The old hymn says, before the throne of God, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love forever lives and pleads for me. So if you're convicted this morning, don't beat yourself up. Take it to the throne of grace and ask the Spirit of God to help you to live selflessly for your spouse and not just living for yourself. And he will help you because we all got sin in our life now. All the sermons I preached last week, that was what it was supposed to be. But this is reality. That's the norm. It's hard. (laughs) But it's still good. Let us pray. Father God, I do pray, thank you, that Christ came, and because of his life and his death, Lord, there is hope for all of our marriages. There is hope. And I pray for anyone here who may not know you, that, Lord, you will speak to this person and that you will challenge this person, that your Holy Spirit will speak to this person because... Christ came to make us right with you, not so that we can have great marriages, but so we can be in right relationship with you. Get marriages is a, r- a result of that, a fruit of that. So, Father, I pray that um, you will continue to show your power, that your spirit will continue to manifest his power in us. And I pray, Lord, that for all of our marriages and those who will soon be married, Lord, that, that we will know that, that it is hard, hard work, Father. And marriage, good marriages just don't happen by accident. It requires a lot of sweat and tears. And, and so we need your spirit to give us the stamina to continue to press on, Lord, to press through the hardness and to know that there's always hope. No matter how hard or how broken it is, there's always hope, Father, in Christ. And so we have to bring our faith into our marriages and to what it means to be a good husband, what it means to be a good wife. Yes, it's hard, but we also have grace now, and that's a beautiful thing. And teach us what it means to be spouses on the cross. In Christ's name I pray, amen.